Welcome to Founder Chats by Bear Metrics, where we chat with founders and hear about how they started and grew their businesses. My name is Brian. I'm the director of ops at Bear Metrics. This week, I talked to Brian Parks, founder of Bigfoot Capital. In this episode, we talk about Brian's story, how he transitioned from working at a local bank to running a tech company, some tips on managing your capital stack, and a whole lot more. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate you joining the podcast today. We always like to get started at the beginning. So I'm very curious from your perspective, what was the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey? Oh, Brian, thanks for having me, by the way. Yeah, my pleasure. Excited to be here. So the the start of my journey, I'd say, really was in 2010. So I graduated college 2004, and really the first six years of my career were in financial services. So I worked for a bank, and then after a couple of years, I don't want to do that. And then um, worked for about five years in mergers and acquisitions. So really helping sell companies primarily. We did some uh, some acquisitions of companies as well. And that was great. Worked with some great people, learned a lot in terms of, uh, and that spanned beyond tech, right? It was kind of all sorts of industries, all sorts of companies, you know, that were, had been built over various periods of time and various formats uh, with different forms of capital and the like, um, and ultimately got to an acquisition event. And I played my part kind of in that, right? Multiple, multiple times, um, which was really enjoyable. But then kind of at, you know, 20, how old was I? Mid twenties, I guess. It's like, there's a very standard career path there, right? Within investment banking. And for me, that I decided that wasn't my path. So, you know, 2008, really financial crisis. I kind of missed the financial crisis, which was interesting and fortunate in that I spent very fortunate, um, especially for someone who was working in finance at the time. Took six months, went traveling, came back, you know, kind of early 09 and didn't really know what I was going to do. It was kind of like I took the GMAT, never applied to a business school. And then, you know, actually went back into investment banking for a little bit. And then that revalidated. No, I don't want to do that with my life and found an opportunity to join uh, a startup. Sorry. So long winded. This, this was 2010. Joined that startup. Employee one, you know, working out of the co-founder's basement in the, one of their houses that's then transitioned into a basement in an office. And kind of that was my first operational role, really. And, you know, you can kind of bucket me as a finance ops guy uh, who at this point, 10 years later, has done all things early stage. Right. So I think you know how that goes. And maybe a bunch of folks that listen to this know how that goes. Right. (laughs) When there's two or three people working on a company or if you start a company and there's one of you, you just have to do all the things. And so that was very exciting and invigorating to me uh, as someone who had never done that. Right. And had really just played that advisory role but hadn't really built, right? And then hadn't even lived with that transition of that company after they sold it, right? And so that was totally new to me and very exciting. And so since 2010, I've kind of been doing that, right? I've kind of just been an early stage guy. So I was at that company, left that company, went to a coding boot camp, learned how to code, really with the thought of, I'm not going to be a developer. I'm going to work with developers though going forward. And I should try to know some stuff. Right. <laughs> so I came back to Denver, worked as a Rails developer for like two months and then actually was presented with an opportunity to um, start a company. So I ended up starting a company called Brand Folder, enterprise SaaS business um, in the digital asset management space, kind of MarTech. And, um, you know, founded that company kind of we actually raised some money pretty early on pre-product. We can talk about that later. That's certainly informed some things and why I do what I do these days. Um, built the team, took it through Techstars. You know, and then kind of spent our time in the ether looking for product market fit for a while, right? And freemium model, nope, that's not going to work. Who's our customer? Who are these 30 competitors? What is digital asset management? What are we doing? <laughs> you know, all that stuff. Um, and so, you know, tons of learnings there with the product, with the market, with um, market timing, which is a real thing, right? Is this market receptive to what we're doing? Do they care? What's the right model here? So all that good stuff. And, you know, ran that company for you know, about two years and then transition out of that business, which is a whole nother story. And then a couple did a couple other things, you know, kind of for a few years within the early stage sphere out here in Denver. And then in 2017, you know, having raised some equity myself, having you know, known a bunch of people, peers that had done the same, uh, angel and venture, being a finance guy who had worked on M&A transactions where there was the concept of a capital stack that included, you know, maybe some equity, maybe angel, maybe venture, maybe not, maybe private equity. 
maybe, you know, mezzanine debt financing, maybe bank debt financing, you know, a capital stack, various sorts of capital as those companies progress that they utilized. And I kind of said, okay, I understand that. And, you know, I think I understand early stage B2B software and what comes along with it, having spent seven years in it. Why don't we lend? Why can't we lend to these types of companies? Right. Which may not sound like that novel of an idea. Back in kind of 2016, 2017, the only group I knew doing it was a group called Lighter Capital out of Seattle. And they'd been doing it you know, maybe since like 2012. Right. And then there was kind of the Silicon Valley banks and they're like the banks that were doing venture debt lending, which basically was, hey, if you go and raise you know, a five million dollar Series A, we'll lend you two million bucks. Right. And I was like, well, there's not that many companies at the end of the day that actually go out and raise a five million dollar Series A. So what about the rest of them? Um, <laughs> and that was it. Right. It was like, OK, I don't think I'm an equity investor. I'm fairly analytical. So if I can understand how to underwrite and analyze these things as a lender, that's what I want to do. And that was the genesis of Bigfoot. And since that time, you know, we stood it up, had to convince some people that we weren't absolutely crazy to lend money to non-asset light businesses that were often losing money. Like, that's not as easy of a thing for people to grasp. Like, hey, hey, put, you know, half a million bucks with us and that's what we're going to do with it. Right. (laughs) Um, Even if we're going to aim to deliver you a good return. So anyways, we we've spent kind of the first three, four years fairly prudently building out our foundation, proving it to ourselves and those folks that had put money with us and trusted us with it, that we could do this, that there was a market, that we could manage risk appropriately, that we could find opportunities to put their money into. And, you know, that's what we've basically done um, in a fairly reasonable format over the past four years and funded 22 companies, put out about close to $20 million in commitments to those companies. And it's gone really well, Um, I think, both for us and our team uh, and our own capital providers and the companies we've supported. Right. There's been a lot of really good outcomes we've been able to play our small role in. And that's where we are today. We're kind of, you know, we just recently had a pretty big milestone for ourselves of, you know, getting some more institutional capital, uh, you know, kind of saying having been the group that's done this now for, you know, almost four years. And that gives us just a lot more ability to go out and basically do more of the same, um, maybe do it at a slightly accelerated pace from where we have now that we feel good about kind of the foundational elements we've put into our own business. And that's it. That's great. <laughs> well, it's, it's cool that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like you, you went into college with, you're sort of on like that traditional, like, like you were going to get like a job, like a regular person totally. job. And then you, you know, and now you're, you're in a business that people thought were, you know, you're on the opposite end of like, that is a business idea that does not currently exist. And maybe you're crazy for trying to trying to do this thing. Was there anything before you entered college where you had that same mentality of maybe I'm about to go on this crazy path in a different non normal person job direction? You know, I think for me, and even probably comes from my dad, who is retired now, but was a do- physician. And, you know, we were kind of like ideas guys, right? And like, maybe like tried in a half-ass way to like do some stuff, right? <laughs> like inventor mindset or like, oh, this would be cool. And like, you know, let's MVP it, not to include like software, but whatever. And and so I think that was just kind of like that curiosity that desire to like come up with new things and you know maybe even test them and that and that just like maybe we're just wired that way like it just constantly happens right (laughs) a lot of things pop into your brain and so i think that that and kind of like the sense of you know if it's travel if it's like whatever i was fortunate to study abroad if it's you know just experiences right i've always valued experiences over things and so i think with that i seek out experiences right and even in my own personal budgeting, like I just don't, I'm not a big consumer, right? Like I don't buy a lot of things. I would rather frankly buy experiences. And if a way of maybe that's manifested within, you know, the path I've chosen professionally is highly experience driven, right? And I think that's why the early stage stuff and the breadth of things I've been able to do at the early stage, both in terms of the companies I've been able to um, be a part of and the roles within those companies have been able to um, attack, it's just been fairly natural. Right. Um, not I wasn't that 12 year old running some lawn mowing business. Right. You know, no no lemonade stand. No lemonade stand. Like yeah. I wasn't that guy, but I yeah. think it's more of just like a, I don't know, uh, inherent thing. 
And so for me, it just never felt that, you know, there's some people out there, a lot of whom I know, which is totally cool. Like, you know, I'm never going to leave my job until I have a next job in place. That's just never been me. I've just been comfortable like, yeah, I'm going to leave and I'll figure it out. Right. And I think there's some luxury there for sure. Right. Like not everyone can do that. Sure. Yeah. Can you think of, I'm curious, and if nothing comes to mind, we can just move on. But I'm wondering if you can remember any of these like kind of initial MVPs that you and your dad concocted that maybe went into practice or maybe they didn't. But, you know, at the time you're like, wow, that is like such a cool idea. Man, it's well, I'll caveat this with I have a terrible memory, which my wife and many people who know me can attest to. But, you know, like, for instance, I mean, I went to a school that did cool things, had like, you know, an inventor fair or what have you. And so, you know, back in the day in the 90s, I guess there was like the ball stall. You know, I did a lot of sports as a kid and there was balls all over the place and what have you. Tennis ball, very shaped balls, sizes, balls. And it's like, well, we should have some place. to. So we built the ball stall, right, <laughs> which was a simple like six by two, six by one, something, you know, with various containers therein where you can store your balls, right? And this was, you know, whatever, 25 years ago. So was it innovative? I have no idea, right? Did we try to take it to production? Do we have a good time doing it? Yeah, absolutely. Was it in our garage for years and served a purpose? Yeah. We didn't try to take it to market, certainly. So, you know, there was that. I think more recently, you know, more with my wife, um, you know, was it 2016, 2015? We have a cat. We love our cat. I'm very punny. Um, Bigfoot, the name itself, kind of came out of a pun. And so I came, our cat was like, my wife was doing yoga in our house, and our cat would like hang out on her yoga mat and like, you know, weave underneath her as she's in down dog and all that stuff. And so I think we we're like, Yamaste. We're like, Iggy, Yamaste. And then he would, you know, be in my home office sitting in my office chair. And it's like, oh, Iggy's holding office meowers. Right. And so, you know, we found a designer uh, locally and, basically started a t-shirt company called Gato Life, right? And so, and that was kind of interesting. We sold, you know, a couple hundred t-shirts, right? But you know, I think at the end of the day, my wife who's a teacher was like, I, I just don't really want to do this. <laughs> and I was like, all right, cool. Um, but, you know, it was fun, right? And we kind of had Happy Meower and Yamaste and Office Meowers and good design and kind of built this, you know, Senior Gato was the, like, you know, cat. So just random stuff like that, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, my, my wife and I, we have, um, and the number just keeps going up every time I look away. But we have four cats and we have these like very, very well illustrated pictures of our cats, like kind of in portrait hung over our fireplace. So if I was, if I was aware of this company, I, I think that, I think I'm your, my wife and I are your target, target market. So. Well, oh two things. One, it's for sale if anyone wants to pick it up. Uh, it comes with in, it comes with inventory and you know a website and an Etsy store. And if nothing else, we can, we'll send you some t-shirts because we. Have okay. Them. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So either uh, my uh, my purchasing options are either the entire business or one or two t-shirts. So. Correct. And I'd probably okay. give you the t-shirts for free. And there you go. Probably a pretty sweet price on the business. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Well. All right. Well. Yeah, maybe let's uh, let's chat after this. Cool. Oh, and I I just can't let you. Um, I don't want to forget before we move on. So you said Bigfoot Capital is um, in part a pun. Are you, are you willing to share the the pun of the company? Yeah, not a great pun by any means. But, you know, actually prior to starting Bigfoot did did a few of these financings to kind of you know, learn. And, you know, the first one we did actually was a was an acquisition financing, um, one SaaS company of another. And so we called it a SaaSquisition, which then led to Sasquatch, which then led to, hey, Bigfoot, whatever. You know, we're out here in Colorado in the mountains, so maybe that was kind of a natural progression. Cool. So zooming back up, I, I took it all the way back to the to the childhood days. So in college, you just did a, I had to be careful the way that I speak and make sure it doesn't sound like uh, I'm condescending or, or anything like that, but you just, you had a, a finance degree. You did a, yeah. you studied finance in school. Correct. Traditional kind of just business path, right? Was that headed towards an MBA or what was sort of the, when you started, which direction or did you know the direction that you wanted to go? You know, I think I had in my mind at one point, which still would have been cool, kind of this concept of international business, right? I like to travel. It's a big world, right? That would be pretty cool. Didn't ultimately pursue that. Uh, or investment banking, maybe I want to go to Wall Street, right? Which also, I guess, could have been cool to do it for a couple of years um, and live in New York, something like that in my early 20s, but didn't take those paths. And I actually landed at like a regional bank in Memphis where I'm originally from. And that was like, mm, okay, you know, it's fine. Worked with good people. Again, learned some stuff. But then after a couple of years, it was like, no, <laughs> you know, this is not, 
this isn't going to do it for me. Um, so yeah, but that was, that was kind of it. You know, the NBA thing was, I guess, kind of out there, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I ended up after my traveling, taking the GMAT and then literally never applied to a single, I think it's good for like five years and it just expired. Right. (laughs) And I got into companies really. Um, so, but, but, but it's definitely a bit different than probably the primary bare metrics audience, I would think in that, you know, when I think of, I I think that obvious, that that audience probably skews a bit more, you know, engineering and product centric, right? And I'm I'm not a product guy, so to speak, like minted as a product guy, starting as an engineer, right? I'm a finance into ops guy, right? Who obviously is, you know, delved into product as I've kind of progressed in my startup experience. Um, yeah, definitely. When you were at that bank in Memphis, yeah, like what was the? So one of the things I hear, and when I'm talking to people, especially as they're maybe looking to join our business. It's just this sort of feeling of boredom. Like, yeah, it's a great job and great people. Yeah. Uh, was that kind of the same thing for you? Or was it just a matter of like, hey, this is like a, a cool spot, but I'm bored? Or what What made you, maybe I can actually form this into like a real question. <laughs> what made you have the inspiration or what drove you to leave and try to find something else? Yeah, I mean, it, it, boredom is kind of it, right? It was, it was lack of intellectual stimulation, I suppose, right? It was kind of, you know, and I was only there two years, right? And I was right out of college, but, you know, I learned some stuff from a credit analysis standpoint, right? Like banks were making loans and I was in a department making loans to businesses. So it started with, okay, learn what goes into making loans, right? (laughs) And assessing lending opportunities. Then it was, okay, I guess you kind of done that, Brian. And I got put into a group basically with, you know, people that have been in banking for 15, 20 years. And I was like the 22, 23 year old supporting them. And then they passed me some of their portfolios that they didn't want. So I ended up with this portfolio of companies, but kind of was like then in like a sales role of like, okay, go find more companies. Right. And at 23 and those companies in Memphis primarily were, I mean, they certainly weren't tech companies. They were like wood pallet company and traditional kind of small businesses. Right. And a lot of grocery stores even and being in like, the corner office of some up top of some grocery store with like the 60 year old owner who owned probably eight of them. And I think he was literally smoking a cigarette and had like a gold bracelet on. And I'm in my suit as like a 23 year old who looked like I was 16. And I was just like, this is, right. I don't know about this. <laughs> I can help you with your, your money, sir. If you, <laughs> if you need some help. Right. And they're like, where's Phil and who the hell are you? Right. right. Like, and so Phil had been their banker. Right. And so for me, that was like, I, I was still interested in finance, certainly. And it just wasn't the level of finance I was interested in. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough to find a position out here in a different form of finance, uh, mergers and acquisitions, that was much more rigorous, right? And, and totally different, in fact. And the caliber of people, to a degree, were different um, in their own career progression. And so that was interesting to me. And moving to Denver was cool and didn't know anyone. It was just a new adventure. So... Yeah, kind of that. And then I kind of saw that path once I had learned a lot within investment banking and understood what that was going to look like. And not that, and those can be, that can be highly lucrative, right? But to me, that wasn't the primary motivator, um, money, right? And it kind of just, once you've done it, you've kind of done it, right? That, that deal is like that deal is like that deal. And you do this, that, the other to run it through the process. Um, now you could argue that within Bigfoot, there is some similarity, <laughs> but in terms of lending and financing and understanding how that works and doing it over and over and over again, but we still get to look at a lot of companies. We still get to grow our, biz- our own business alongside those companies, right? Which is just kind of different than being in something more cemented and traditional. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you think the difference is between that type of job role that you would categorize as, oh, this is just like a boring hamster wheel versus, oh, this is like a well-run operation and we have processes. What do you think the the different, is it a matter of motivation at that point? Potentially, right? And it all, I mean, it comes down to multiple things, right? And I don't, I've only got my own views and <laughs> my own biases, right? Um, but I guess it's what motivates you and what you can tolerate, right? Can you be part of some, can you be a cog in something bigger and maybe get paid well to be that cog, uh, but not have that much uh, agency potentially, or a lot standing in the way of that agency, right? Does that matter to you? Or are you totally fine with that, right? 
I think for me, that does matter to me, <laughs> right? Um, I guess I do like to have agency. I do like to be creative. I do like to, you know, be able to, if, even if it's process, create on process, iterate on process, determine when we need process, determine when we productize process, right? So yeah, I just think those types of exercises, um, for me at least, have been achieved through kind of early stage endeavors. Not that you can't do them in larger organizations if you figure out how to navigate that and if the culture is accepting of that. Cool. That's great. So you went from small business banking, kind of almost sounds like a relationship banking type world, and then you moved into the M&A investment banking world. And you kind of had, it sounds like there was a bit of like a, a gear shift that happened between those two. Yeah, yeah, there definitely was, right? And, you know, there definitely was from the intensity of the work, the expectations, even kind of the caliber of the people. But, and so coming up that curve was definitely a thing. And I was fortunate to have some mentorship, you know, because I didn't have the pedigree necessarily. On paper, you could make the argument that I didn't even belong there, you know, but I think possibly at times, you know, I think, you know, at the firm out in Denver, which is a small firm, it's not Wall Street investment banking, but a lot of those people had come from, you know, Wall Street banks and had different experience than I had, right? So I think there was some proving and certainly learning. Like, I didn't even really know how to use Excel <laughs> at that point. Certainly not to any, like, high caliber, you know, so there was a lot of learning, but but it was great, right? And so that was kind of a, a challenge to, to take that on. You know, you mentioned the word relationship. And so in this I think does kind of parlay into Bigfoot and our view on relationships. So I like relationships. I think that was one of the good things about you know, traditional banking is you do build relationships um, over the medium to long term. Investment banking is a lot more transactional, right? You are working exclusively on a transaction, right? Got a company. It's a whatever, 20 million in revenue. They want to sell the thing for 100 million. That's your job, right? Help them sell it for 100 million. And you're not doing anything else, right? And then once that happens, you're on to the next one, right? There is no tail there. And so literally a transaction over and over and over again, right? Um, so Bigfoot does transactions, right? We fund companies, but then we, as a team, maintain that relationship, right? Which is great, right? And so for us, you know, moving money in and, in and of itself in a transactional format is not interesting to, to me, right? And so I think that manifests in the fact that you know, we're not out there to boil the ocean with some huge volume play just to you know move money, move money, move money. We're here to partner with companies, right? And for us, I think that you know it does mean that we take that very seriously. We enjoy it. Um, we plug in and we run a much more concentrated portfolio, right? You know, call it 15 to 25 companies, not 200. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing operating at scale. And I think it's a decision that a lot of entrepreneurs need to make of like, okay, is this going to be a $7 a month product, uh, and I need to get like, you know, a million people, uh, or am I going to charge $7,000 a month? And I just have like 10 customers, but I'm like super excited about that. So it sounds like, it sounds like you sort of went through that process and you said like, well, I'd rather work with fewer companies, but I'd rather like, almost seems like you don't want to be in that environment where you show up to the office one day and you're like, wait, who is this? Who is this company? Like, what do they what do they do? Who are these people? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I think there as we grow, there will be and naturally should be some of that. I don't need to I don't need to know, nor should I, as we grow every every company, but someone on our team should, right? And that person on our team should have again agency, right? Not buried beneath me or layers, right? And they should have support from me and us institutionally. But yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the ethos, right? Of of relationships, right? And so for us, we say we're in the boat, not on the cap table. And people may be like, well, "What the hell does that mean?" And it means it means well, we're in the boat, right? We're not on your board, even. We're not. We don't buy your equity. You don't sell it to us, and we don't come onto your board, right? We're not equity investors, but we're also not just lending you money and then you're not hearing from us at all. And you know, if we didn't if we didn't think we could bring any value from our experiences and or our broader network, for instance, yeah, then maybe you shouldn't hear from us, right? <laughs> but you know, given our, given what we've done, you know, kind of over the years across our team, across different types of businesses and operational capacities, as well as, you know, we've got multiple investment bankers and some private equity folks on our team as well. Like just bring a kind of nice breadth of experience that oftentimes is lacking in earlier stage companies that may be more engineering or product focused or 
even sales focused, right? They may lack that kind of broader operational experience. Maybe. They may not. And if they don't, and they've got that great team and a great board and advisors, like maybe our role is lessened there. Sure. Interesting. And was that, was that operational stance informed by being in the M&A world and sort of being in the like fiercely, fiercely transactional world? Is that, did you make a decision at that point of when you were ready to move on from there? It was like, okay, cool. I want to move away from the transactional, transactional model. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to be a practitioner basically. Right. And I think, you know, as we've grown our team here, what's important is, and look, people that have joined our team have had, it's a leap. It's a leap of faith, right? In multiple ways. And there are people that also may have been, though that subset of people that may have been on that track that I was once on. And unfortunately, I'm, you know, a bit older than they are, but that's fine. And, you know, made that leap like I made. And, and that means a lot to me, right? Um, cause that's not for everyone. And so I think they also, you know, and Bigfoot may not have been their first leap out of that directly, but similar type thing of, okay, I've kind of done that and I want something else, right? And, yeah. And I think they're energized by that as well. And even within Bigfoot, like there's still some amorphous stuff here and I, I think, you know, things to work on and things to codify. And so what that means to me is a lot of projects that, you know, while you may have a fairly defined role in some capacity, there's still a bunch of other stuff that you can cross-functionally own or participate in. Cool. Well, tell me, so we've kind of brought it up to the, um, to the M&A world. Tell me about moving out of there. And that's, is this the point in the timeline where you were the founder of your first company? Moving on, no, that's, so the first one I joined is, basically, you know, employee one with the two co-founders. Um, spent, you know, 18 months, a couple of years there. Then, you know, fast forward, I guess, six months after, you know, my code school experience and two, two months as a Rails developer, that was when I kind of, you know, was approached by two guys who were, you know, entrepreneurs in their own right and didn't have the time because they had gigs. Um, to, to start this new effort brand folder, which was basically pitched to me by them uh, in a bar on like back and napkin type stuff, right? Smart experienced guys across product and building companies, but they just, you know, they had their own things going on. So they basically said, Hey, do you want to, do you want to do this? And I was you know, 30 at the time and said, yeah. Right. And so that was me being a first time CEO, not knowing what the hell I was doing in that seat. Right. Um, basically. And that was very, very formative experience, I would say, for sure. And so now I'm a second time CEO. Right. At Bigfoot. And frankly, I'm much more in my lane. Right. Like I did. I know out of MarTech and digital digital asset management and building a product from nothing other than back of the napkin pitch deck. No. Right. And so now at Bigfoot, so taking a lot of learnings from that, I hope. And, you know, even within this company, I am much more in my lane, right? It kind of is finance, you know, in a large way, while wrapping a growth-oriented company around that core relationship-driven finance offering. That's really cool. And such a big leap of faith that those people put into you. I mean, being offering a position like that of, hey, we have this really cool product and what we think is going to be a really great company, but we don't have the bandwidth to run with it. Let's, you know, let's hand our baby over to someone else. What do you, what do you think they saw in you at that point in time that said like, yeah, Brian, Brian's our guy. Man, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> and what do they think now? <laughs> right, right. You know, and I may maintain relationships and good relationships um, and even active relationships with, with, with those folks. So, you know, maybe it was just kind of ambition, hunger. You know, one of the guys was a kind of quasi advisor to that, that company where I was, was employee one. So that's how I actually met him. I think, you know, I think he was intrigued by the fact that I left that company and pursued something, which was that code school and saying, hey, here's why I'm doing this. Um, given some of the things I had experienced at that previous company where I, you know, didn't run product, didn't touch product, saw some uh, decisions that were made that maybe I would or would not have made if I were in that seat. So I think that was just kind of, hey, here's this guy who, you know, has some attributes that, that maybe we like, <laughs> right? So... How long did you did you know that individual before they before he said, "Hey, come come run my company for me"? Yeah, six months, maybe up to a year. Okay, so not not that long. It wasn't like a they followed you for like a a five year trajectory, but no. it, it wasn't. You know, you didn't meet in the bar that night. We did not <laughs> meet in the bar that wasn't that quite day, that quick. Actually. Yeah, yeah. 
No, it wasn't quite that quick. Although I may have met Chris, the other guy, that day. I don't remember if I had met Chris prior to that. But yeah, you know, and Chris was involved with companies that I was familiar with um, here in Denver. Yeah, but no, I had never worked with either of those guys directly in any capacity. I'd love to hear more about your thought process in joining a coding bootcamp. It seems like that's a, a step that not very many people do. But I, I always am in the spot where people are asking me, like, well, where do I where do I find a technical co-founder? Hey, help me help me wrap my head around how do I communicate with my development team? It sounds like you just said, like, well, I'll just learn the skills. Like I'll actually just build that knowledge base into myself and then that's going to be a huge asset to me moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the basic thought process of, hey, if I think I'm going to start you know, a software company at some point, right, um, which I ultimately ended up doing, um, I think that could be a net benefit, right? And it probably discounted how hard software development actually is, right? I was a spreadsheet jockey, I understood logic. Oh, okay, this can't be much harder than that. It, it is. <laughs> um, but I think, so it was forward looking of, okay, I'm not going to be the engineer, but if I could MVP a product, that would be cool. If I could contribute to a code base, that would be cool. If I can interact with developers beyond just being a business guy, right? Who they may be inherently skeptical of, that's good, right? And not get, you know, I can still get hoodwinked, right? I'm not technical enough to know a lot of things, right? But I think one of the things I saw at that company I was previously with prior to going to the bootcamp was, just the spend of a lot of money that was not necessary on a, on a product that was certainly over-engineered. And look, engineers will, will write code till the cows come home, right? If there's budget there for it, oftentimes, some engineers, right? So, you know, it was kind of that experience. And the other part was just really back to that kind of intellectual curiosity, right? Okay, I know a bunch of developers. What do they do? Seems interesting. It's really cool. They have the superpower, you know, can I learn that, right? Can I... Get on Heroku. Can I spin up an app? Can I go through this tutorial? Can I, you know, learn recursion? All these things, right? So that was just interesting to me uh, as well, in, in more of a hobbyist format. Yeah. Did that seem like a strange decision to make at the time? To me, no, no, it it didn't. I mean, it was kind of a it was a it was a new leap, right? But I think I'm I, I guess I'm comfortable with those types of leaps, and again, have the some luxury to make them in terms of flexibility, right? Part of which may come from, I don't, back to, I'm not a consumer of things, right? I don't go out and buy a bunch of stuff. So that gives you some ability to do those types of things. So no, I mean, that was pretty natural to me. I think what was kind of weird was, you know, I started, had started dating someone who's now my wife. And that was like the first summer we were together. I'm like, oh, I'm moving to San Francisco. And, you <laughs> okay, know, yeah. and I did that. And then the next summer it was like, oh, I'm moving to Boulder, you know, just from Denver, but up the road to go through Techstars. She's like, man. Uh, okay. This guy, <laughs> yeah, this guy, and she's a teacher. She's a teacher, so she has the summers off. And so, big props to her for she's been with me basically through this whole path, right? Which is a which is non traditional. So, <laughs> yeah, I've I've um, listened to a lot, if not all, of the episodes of this podcast hosted by Josh. And one theme that I've seen over and over again is just a a partner or somebody in the founder's life that is sort of that aspect of <laughs> stability and maybe sanity sometime. And, uh, and I guess support too, being like, yeah, you know, okay, cool. Well, yeah, I guess we're like, I think, I don't know what the stats are. I think most people don't move and you had this person in your life like, okay, cool. Well, we're going to move to San Francisco and then next summer we're going to move to Colorado and then, you know, like, okay, well now we're starting a company, I guess. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. And she, back to me having a horrible memory, I mean, I do remember our first date. But, you know, apparently I was like, yeah, I'm going to start a company. Right? And then within the year I had. So I think that was at least prefaced to a degree. So I think. Yeah, so there was a warning involved. There was a warning. So I think, you know, she understands kind of at this point, certainly 10 years in how I'm wired, right? Which is helpful. Not to say that she's like, man, could you have just stayed in investment banking and be making a lot more money? Right. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess I could have, but not yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. So was the was the company that you started the one that you went to Techstars for? Yes, yes, it, it was. And, um, you know, it, ultimately a very good outcome for that company. Um, that company ended up getting acquired um, last year by a publicly traded company, right? And kind of went through the whole... 
you know, and it took close to 10 years, right? So no overnight success with multiple people involved and all of it, right? Like the whole thing of building a company over, I guess it was really nine years, eight, nine years to that outcome, right? Which at certain points along the way, it looked like, you know, it was not cemented in stone, <laughs> but that would be the outcome, right? So, you know, a lot of effort uh, and commitment from a lot of people was put into that to, to make that happen. And, you know, with that company, you know, it was done in the right way, I think, in that it didn't, you know, they raised some equity, certainly, but not inordinate amounts of equity that made a, you know, sizable acquisition that's not a unicorn be viable, number one, and two, of benefit to many people to include the employees, material benefit, right? And so those are the types of outcomes that, and I think my investment banking experience informs that, you know, we were doing... 50 to $200 million acquisitions. Those are big numbers, right? But those are big numbers that don't get much play within tech, right? And oftentimes get turned off because of the overcapitalization of companies that put them on a certain path. And so, you know, at Bigfoot, we like to think that we increase increase optionality, right? We still put in growth capital, right? Still help companies grow, but we don't, you know, our money doesn't mean that you have to 10X your valuation to be successful, right? And that universe of acquisitions of that scale, or even down to, you know, 25 million, are viable and can be of great benefit to to the founders, even the team, and shareholders. So that's where we play. And those are the types of outcomes that we have seen within our portfolio and that we hope to continue to see and that just work out really well, right? And then it becomes personal of like, man, Mike, you know, CEO or whomever, right? That just happened and that's awesome. <laughs> You know, and we got paid back and made a little bit of money and that, and that's totally cool too. And that works for our model, right? Yeah, everybody won. Yeah. When you were running that business, what was the process of growing it? Like, like how did you, how did you go to market and what lessons did you learn that, you know, thinking about other people who might be listening and be like, oh, cool, I want to, I want to do tech stars or I want to do whatever accelerator, or I just want to start a business or grow my business. Like, what did you learn going through that process that? They got you to the, you know, to that awesome 10 year success story. Yeah. I mean, man, a lot of stuff. And I wrote about this years and years and years ago, and it's still out there on medium, a three part series of first time learnings as a first time CEO. <laughs> so, and that was a cathartic exercise coming out of that. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, let's give you a quick path. We raised money. You know, those two guys who I mentioned had a nice network and had some success. I wouldn't have been able to raise the amount of money we raised on my own. And we raised that, which enabled us to do some things, right? Bring on my partner, Paul, who's still, you know, I skied with yesterday. <laughs> He's, you know, one of my best friends out here. He joined basically as technical co-founder and, you know, have some resources to put into some stuff. You know, we actually entered Techstars pre-product, right? And we raised that money pre-product, which for me personally was a learning experience of like, I would never do that again. I'm just not a good, I don't think I'm great. I need data and I need like real traction to be able to go out and, present that to someone, right? R rather than just vision. That's just that's just me. So we raise it early and when you raise it, the clock is ticking, whether you think it is or it isn't, right? So we were in our Texas cohort, we were building a product, we released it in beta. You know, one of the benefits, I guess, of those types of programs is you can get a lot of initial adoption from the network. But for us, that was like, oh, it's free, okay, use this thing, right? And then it was like, what is this thing, right? Is it a press kit? Is it slightly better than Dropbox? It was basically you can put logos, images, digital marketing uh, or marketing assets into a place that lives in the cloud that can represent it visually, that can have permissioning, that can ultimately down the road track stuff, analytics. I mean, it became a pretty robust product, engineered and presented quite simply, which is one of its core benefits. Uh, it wasn't some behemoth, but, you know, and it was freemium and it was like, well, does a 10 person company need this? Can't they just put their like two logos in Dropbox or are we their press kit? Now there's all these, uh, these other press kit plugins. Like who really need, you know, we weren't seeing freemium conversions, right? Okay. That's not going to work. You know, clock is ticking. We're spending money. That's not generating revenue. Okay. Um, who do we sell this to? And I think that, you know, like the first, I want to say the first sale that I did was like a $3,000 sale. to like a healthcare system. It was like, huh, interesting. And then we like, sold a swimwear company who I think remains a customer to this day. So does the healthcare system, maybe, you know, just kind of these random customers. And then I was like, do they look alike? How do we price this thing? They're going to pay that. They're going to pay that, you know, and just learning through that experience of actually getting paying customers. Right. 
and okay, do we hire an AE? Is he going to like bang the phones? Are we going through agencies? Like, is that a channel? Do they care? You know, just all that stuff of taking it to market and, and trying to learn. And so that was where we were. And, you know, by the time I left, I wouldn't say we'd found product market fit, right? And it probably took a couple few years and, you know, some things happened within the business from a capital standpoint that enabled it to survive and have that time, um, which was, you know, there's luck and there's these things that happen in companies along the way that, you know, because it could have died probably, right? Like, like many do, but it didn't <laughs> and gave that runway to continue learning and continue getting new customers and to continue getting some sales experience in there that um, could put forth some, you know, sales strategies, right? Similar to how you guys do at Xenon, right? Like bringing some of that stuff into a company and in Brandfolder's instance, I was you know, bringing some people into that company who had done those functions at, you know, other companies that had scaled up. So probably lots of other learnings in there. <laughs> Raising money too early, uh, adjusting, you know, from premium to actually having to sell, who do we sell it to? Do they look like, you know, what's going on in intercom? Like what kind of engagement are we getting? You know, all the, all that stuff. Yeah. Do you think having the running clock was beneficial? I don't know, honestly. I'm sure it had some net benefit for sure in terms of additional different type of motivation and urgency, but I think that would have been there anyway. So, you know, the counterside of that can just be anxiety and paralysis to a degree, right? So, you know, I remember sitting in my office at like midnight by myself and I stumbled across, you know, Ben Horowitz's The Struggle essay, which is you know part of his broader book that he wrote, Hard Thing About Hard Things, great book. And I was just like, yeah, <laughs> this is me right now, right? Dark office, midnight, like searching, grasping, right? With no answers. So yeah, you know, with the clock ticking, right? With other people's money in the business, with, you know, employees in the business, with all those things. So Bigfoot's taking a very different path. And, right. you know, we, we <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hear so. that. So what was, and I'm curious, I feel like getting to that, that ideal customer profile, that, that sales profile of a customer is like the, you know, that's it. Like that's the, that's the holy grail of figuring out your go-to-market strategy. And it sounds like, you know, the company got there. It took some time, but it got there. What was the process? How did you figure that out? How did you get to something where it was either, and I guess I'm curious, was it written down or, you know, how did you actually capture it? How did you get to something that you're like, okay, cool. This is what we're going for. Just find a bunch of things that are in this shape and configuration and we can scale the business. I don't, unfortunately, think I can be the one to claim credit for that. I would say I was gone by that point, honestly. It wasn't, there was still a search for product market fit with the clock ticking. You know, both of those two things in conjunction led to me not being there anymore. So again, a bigger story there. But, you know, hopefully I had planted some seeds, right, with kind of the learnings that we had done and the initial customers that we had been able to acquire. But I think, you know, fast forward to Bigfoot, and we're four years into Bigfoot, and we're still refining, let's just say, our ICP, Right. It's an ongoing process, of course. And, you know, but I think, in, in frankly, we do that alongside, so are our customers, if you want to call it portfolio companies, as we call it. You know, they're doing that as well, right? Because it is, it just evolves, right? And some are doing it to different degrees, but I do think the experience that we have still doing that here to a degree and having had to do it before and being successful or not, you know, we're peers in that regard right, to the companies that I view us as peers, largely to the companies that we work with, right? We're not sitting here on a high, knowing everything. And we haven't been, you know, frankly, we haven't been doing it for 30, 40 years. Well, it seems like a real challenge for your business, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are in the spot where they say something like, well, you know, my product is for everybody, anybody can use this. Uh, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes there's some truth to that. But most of the time, it's like, well, there is a target audience that is much more suitable for your product. However, for you, the ultimate product is money. And boy, if there's a universal product uh, in <laughs> right. the universe, like money, access to capital has got to be it. So what's your thought process on getting to that ICP and how are you, how are you modifying and, you know, adjusting over time? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to the right, you know, it is a certain form of capital, Right that uh, may or may not make sense at a certain point in a company, right? Holistically speaking. And then there's the whole comfort aspect of, you know, founders and execs and their own equity holders, right? A lot of people, at least you know, equity is 
kind of a known thing, even if it's not, right? The innards of it oftentimes are not known, right? But, you know, okay, angel money, venture money, right? But like debt, you know, we, a lot of people have never borrowed money for a business before, right? There may be fear there, there may be misunderstanding, there may be, so there's a lot of somewhat education and representation of, hey, how, when, in what format it makes sense, right? And, and what to look out for, right? Like I said, we want to increase optionality. So things that would not increase optionality is putting way too much debt on your company that uh, and sucking all the cash out and fouling up something downstream, right? So we have our own sensitivities that we look to have the <laughs> people we work with sensitivities and help them understand why they should be sensitive to it, right? Um, and be very transparent about that. We are the experts and you know, we are the finance experts in the room, let's just say, right? We do this all day, every day. And so we don't, we look to use that not from an information asymmetry standpoint or to our advantage, but more from a consultative standpoint, right? Of helping people understand this tool and how it can be used in isolation, right? And never sell equity or in conjunction, right? Or it can be used now and then that can happen then, right? Like there is a progression in capital as companies grow and mature. I think that concept's just you know, one that's important to understand. So for us, that's, you know, and then, you know, so we do a decent amount of education and even, you know, but then we may say, okay, maybe we need to find our, the already educated, right? Because maybe there's too much friction and changing that psychological or getting them to listen and care and understand, right? If we're able to, maybe there's too much friction there. I don't know. And, and so, all right, who are they already educated, right? Maybe they have borrowed before. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they've worked in other industries other than tech where this is more of a thing and they get it. Maybe they've sold equity before and had a painful experience. You know, it's just, it's, it's figuring that out. And then it's aligning and saying, you know, where are you trying to go? What are you trying to do? Right. Is that viable? Are you going to raise a $20 million series A, but you're growing at 1% a month? You know, it's like, okay, I don't know if that's going to be achievable. <laughs> is there another path? You know, it's just digging in. And I think, so you can't really do that in a transactional format with a plug and play algorithmically driven thing. It is more of a, you know, we pair the quantitative aspect of it, which we look to do very efficiently, let's say, through data and models and all that good stuff. But then there's the qualitative aspect of the more holistic story of what the founders and their supporters are really trying to do. And can we align and plug in and support them in that? Yeah, it seems like that's the big challenge. That's the relationship. That's the personal part of it, right? right? Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. And then that even becomes qualifying. It's like, look, if that's not, if you can't be bothered to take time with that or you're just not interested, okay, I get it. And there's other options for you. But like, you know, I don't want to be providing a product, service, experience to someone who doesn't value it, right? And just looks at me transactionally. Absolutely. Yeah. And and there will be some people that they, because it's like you said, this is kind of a relatively novel concept are like maybe not going to get it. But it sounds like it feels like there's this common thing that happens from a sales, you know, uh, kind of early like onboarding standpoint of there are people, there are potential customers who are looking to achieve a goal, but they want to do it in a certain way. And sometimes it can be challenging to convince them that what we really want to do is and the customers that are the best are the ones that are like, well, here's my goal. Uh, and you tell me, like, tell me, tell me how you think we can get there. And if they like it, they'll go with you. And if not, how successful have you been in bringing the like, well, you know, like you said, I want to raise $20 million, but the fundamentals of the business are, you know, that that's like a, that's a task. That's not a, an objective that they're trying to get to. How, how have you been, have you been successful in bringing people from the, you know, the, the, the task orientation to the goal orientation, or is that just something that's difficult to do in general? It's a really good question. I hope we have been. I think, I think it's just, it, it just varies, right? Um, a lot of it, frankly, comes down to our counterparties, the founders and their teams' own experiences, right? And I guess openness to even that dialogue, right? Which may come down to personality traits as well, right? So I think there's, we don't get like super psychographic with it, but, you know, there is, we have certain types of people, I think, that we enjoy working with, right? If we say, oh, like, we need more Nates, right? If Nate's a CEO that we funded, like, or more Clint's, like, those are great, right? Like, okay, they, they get it. We align with them. They're receptive, what have you. And, you know, a lot of this is, um, you know, and sometimes there's sales cycles, basically, right? Some things move really quick. Some things, 
you know, they've been talking to someone on and off for a couple of years, right? And there's building trust and there's the concept of giving before getting, right? Which is, you know, Techstars has a mantra of give first, which I think is a good one, right? So what can I give you? Can I model something out for you? Can I, you know, write something that's of benefit to you? <clears throat> can I make some introduction, <clears throat> right? And those are the things that we do post investment, as we would call it, right? Once we've lent you money, there's no reason we shouldn't do them within reason without crushing ourselves along the way prior to that, right? Yeah, you've cultivated this focus on the relationship aspect, which maybe started with you all the way back in the you know SMB banking days. But that makes so much sense. And it's almost like a, a qualifier for your potential customers of like, if, if they're not willing to engage in the relationship side, then that's probably not the fit. I, I said a little bit earlier that money is your product that you're selling, but it's kind of like the relationship is actually sounds more like the product and money is like the the byproduct of, you know, knowing the customers and understanding or the portfolio companies, understanding what they need and where they're going. And, you know, from your experience, trying to make sure that they don't hastily make a decision that three, five, seven years down the road is like, oh, man, I really wish we <laughs> I really wish we didn't do that. Yeah, no, I think that's broadly accurate, right? I mean, what, <clears throat> the money is a tool to achieve things, right? It's objectives, right? As you said, unless you know, there's tactic, tactics, tactics that get deployed to achieve those objectives. But, you know, should we provide you money without having some understanding of what those things are? And if we're the right group to <laughs> not only provide you the money, but try to help you get there? Probably not, right? And that comes back to I just think it's so core that it's just not that interesting to me to move money around in isolation and not have any other involvement with the folks we're doing that with. Totally. And I think that this is like a trend that I see that a lot of businesses, even if you think that you're in this sort of transactional kind of self-serve space, there's always like so much room to actually work with your customers and understand what they're trying to do. And there's almost, especially if you're just getting started, there's like almost always something that you can do manually. Like, you know, people don't want to do things like, oh, we don't want to be a services company. But there's almost always something that's like, well, you're not getting paid for it, actually. So don't be, don't worry about being a services company. It's such a good mentality of you're like, well, let's kind of do as much of what we would do for the, for the potential customer after they sign up. Let's do as much of that as we can up front. And it seems like that's like a great pattern to... One, make sure that you get the right customers in the door, but two, also build that relationship and, and build that trust. I think people people listening should be able to listen to this and say, like, the question they can ask is like, well, how can we emphasize relationship more in our product, uh, especially if that's like not something that they thought about or not something that they do at all right now? Yeah, totally. You know, you know, even you know, not on every financing we do, but on maybe, maybe the larger ones and where, where it's more applicable, you know, we're going to talk with if there's other investors in the mix who may or may not be on the board, but have put money in the company, if there's certain larger customers, you know, we're going to even have those conversations as part of our diligence, right? Which, you know, hopefully doesn't scare people, but those are like some of my favorite conversations to have, right? And, and likewise, in turn, anyone should speak to companies we've worked with, founders we've worked with, you know, whoever, right? You can hear it from me ad nauseum, but like, you know, get it from a different source. Cool. Well, I know I've been talking to you for a while now, pulling a lot of um, great information out, but I wanted to provide some time here at the end. I'd love to hear just kind of like the the current, you know, state of affairs at, uh, at Bigfoot. I know you just had a, a big press release come out, so I don't know if you want to <laughs> speak to that at all, but it's kind of like, you know, what's going on? And if we want to have a little bit of space at the end here for, you know, the pitch of, you know, hey, anybody who's listening who has been on board with this, uh, like, hey, yeah, why would I get money from people that don't actually care about me and don't know what's right for me? Uh, you know, if, if you have the the pitch, too, I'd love to get that out there, too, and let me, people know, like, how to how to contact you. Sure. Yep. Before that, this has been great. You're very good at this. Awesome. <laughs> the, question, the questions have been awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So we just did our first press release, uh, which... You know, for me, it was a big uncomfortable, just not a two-year horn type of guy, I guess, yeah, but it made sense. Thing. It was kind of a big milestone for us. So, you know, we just closed on a, a sizable financing for us, you know, kind of with an institution we feel really good about and some other folks involved as well that, um, you know, gives us a, a good amount more capital to go out and kind of keep doing the same thing. You know, we've kind of 
you know, while still continuing to improve and learn, of course, but, you know, keep providing meaningful amounts of capital commitments to companies in a non-dilutive format, right? You want to say companies, you know, fairly broadly B2B software companies, it's not even exclusively SaaS, you know, some marketplace companies, you know, not every company should be subscription necessarily, right? Like it's just one business model to deploy, but companies that, you know, for us, it's generally kind of a million and a half in, let's say run rate up to kind of 10 million and putting kind of 250,000 up to two and a half million. So fairly broad into those types of companies to help them execute on the growth plan, right? And or get to that kind of next uh, event in their company, which could be an equity raise, could be a sale of the business, could be, hey, we decided to do neither of those things and we're cash flowing and growing and maybe we put more money in. You know, it's just those types of situations. And, you know, just um, continue doing that basically in a kind of very focused, again, relationship-driven, uh, efficient format, right? That's what we're doing. Cool. Awesome. So people who, oh, who that sound interesting to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do people find me? Right. Yeah. So we're at bigfootcap.com. It's a very slimmed down website meant to convert. Convert for us is, hey, let's talk, <laughs> right? You know, you can share some information for him if you want, but you can go to bigfootcap.com and basically click a button and there we are, right? There's Calendly and let's let's have a chat. And then, you know, our blog, we write a bunch of stuff around capital, write about a bunch of stuff around operations and, and, and the like. And um, yeah, that's it. We're pretty easy to find. I don't really spend much time on Twitter anymore. <laughs> We're active on LinkedIn, but so, yeah. That's great. So yeah, people who are, are maybe curious and want to dip their toe in the water can check out the blog and maybe that'll help provide a little bit more context. And I'm just curious, like for anybody, I know just... And I'm sure you, you understand too from being a founder. It's just like you never know if you're if you want to invest in something, uh, you know, invest your time in, into uh, going down a specific path. I'm just curious, like, what is that? If somebody wanted to reach out and wanted to have that like initial chat, like, how do those conversations go? Like, what do you what do you talk about? So we can maybe take a little bit of the you know the uncertainty out of that process. Yeah, I mean, so our process, just for what it's worth, generally runs kind of like five weeks from a first call to a funding. It's not overnight, right? It's also not going to drag you out. I mean, part of that is, you know, a big part of what we're doing here is to make it, you know, our job is to make it as trans as transparent as possible and get the information we need as quickly as possible to assess viability, right? And so in that first call, which may be 20, 30 minutes, it's, hey, let's like try to get our heads around the fun head around the high level fundamentals. And then you can share information after that call if it makes sense, you know, while also understanding the story, right? And sharing whatever about us, right? So it's a pretty casual, I think we're pretty casual in nature, <laughs> uh, just holistically. But, um, you know, trying to determine viability. So for us, at a very high level, you know, we don't operate outside of the U.S. Uh, we don't do anything that doesn't have a software product component to it, which could, you know, even be tech-enabled services. And then, you know, if you're not at a million and a half in revenue, which I understand a lot of companies aren't, we're not viable now doesn't mean we couldn't be viable in six, 12 months as you're growing to it. Right. So it's always worthwhile to have the, the chat. And, you know, also a big part of what we do is, you know, if we say, Hey, it's not a fit for us, you better be able to point you in some productive area way. Right. Um, which we always are generally able to do. Right. Yeah. We just don't want people wasting time. You know, I've wasted time. I know a bunch of people that have wasted time chasing cap, chasing capital. That's not, it's not viable. Right. Um, and it may be not viable for very good reasons, um, but it doesn't mean people don't waste a lot of time and come out the other end feeling like crap, honestly, right? And feeling dejected. Um, so we don't want we don't want that happening to people. Yeah. So it sounds like people who might be interested, book some time, you know, 20, 30 minutes, have your business stats in front of you. And then sounds like by the by the end of that first 30 minutes, you should know, hey, is this is this something that we should pursue now? Is this something for down the road? And um, sounds like it's pretty likely that even if it's not a fit now or ever, that they're going to walk away with at least some useful analysis, or maybe you can introduce them to somebody else. So it's not your, it almost sounds like it's a, uh, uh, you work uh, really hard to make sure that that's not like waste of time when talking to somebody on the phone. Totally. We're very like, aggressive, I suppose, at the top of our own funnel. <laughs> aggressively, <laughs> to, uh... aggressively helpful. Mutually, yeah, aggressively hopeful and mutually qualifying, right? It's like, hey, look, let's, let's just be as efficient as we can in a like, you know, in the right way. So yeah, you know, even with Barometrics, you know, we did a kind of email blast, if you remember last month or something. And, you know, the offer there was kind of like, hey, give us read only to your you know, admin or 
whatever to your barometrics account. And that is, we're in the data, right? If we can get in the data, we can move very efficiently from a quantitative standpoint, right? So that's even one avenue, right? We're always happy to receive information and digest it quickly. Awesome. That's great. Well, Brian, thanks so much for, for making the time. I really appreciate that. This has been awesome. I think everybody wants to uh, hear from people who are investing money. Uh, and, and so many of those uh, figures seem, you know, mysterious, <laughs> mysterious mm-hmm. shadow figure. So it's really cool to share your story, go through the fact that you've founded companies, you've run companies, um, you started like most people of like, hey, I'm not quite sure <laughs> what direction I'm going to go. And um, there, there wasn't a straight path. So I, I think this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people who are starting businesses and running businesses. And yeah, it sounds like, uh, you know, people who uh, are interested in this, they should, uh, they should reach out. Uh, it sounds like more likely than not, that's going to be a, a good use of their time. Yeah, great. No, this has been, this has been awesome. And I remain a uh, ardent supporter of Barometrics and all, all that you guys do. Awesome. I appreciate that. All right. Well, thanks so much, Brian. Thanks a lot. That was our conversation with Brian Parks, founder of Bigfoot Capital. If you're looking for a growth-oriented loan, you know where to go. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at barometrics.com. We hope you enjoyed the episode invite you to check out our other founder chats. If you're able to share with a friend or leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.